2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense Political Talk Without the Boring Parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about why socialism is on the agenda in 2020. Katrina Vandenhoeven will comment. And we'll also look back at some of the big events of 2019 and some of our favorite interviews, starting with the terrorist attacks in El Paso and elsewhere. Historian Catherine Ballou says these are not isolated events carried out by loners. In fact, they're connected, the work of a movement with tens of thousands of active members. Also, 2019, of course, has been the year of impeachment. Historian Rick Perlstein has comment and analysis. But first, capitalism is broken, and it's time for something new. That's what Katrina Vanden says. She's editorial director and publisher of The Nation and a weekly columnist at The Washington Post online. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. So what would you say is the biggest difference among the Democratic candidates?
4: The biggest difference, I think, is their approach to capitalism. I mean, we've seen some extraordinary issues that once the nation has long championed a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, but the larger framework of debate around these policies Is about reshaping the U.S. economy, and it reflects the debates, reflect a larger, more fundamental disagreement about capitalism itself. So one naturally goes to two candidates Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Because let's be honest, John Bloomberg may may (laughs) think it's cheaper to spend a few hundred million dollars just buying the presidency than to pay 2% of his $54 billion wealth to help narrow the wealth gap in the United States. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie's wealth tax. Mm -hmm. But I do think Bernie Sanders is a self-described democratic socialist. Elizabeth Warren is more in the Rooseveltian tradition of taming, saving capitalism from its excesses. But I do think both of them operate within a framework of a different form of capitalism. I think the debate over economic systems is often stuck in cartoon caricatures It's as if we're only offered two choices, robber-baron capitalism or freedom-zapping state socialism. And I think both Warren and Bernie Sanders, you know, understand we've lived in mixed economies since the Second World War. We've experienced and we continue to today uh, experience the global spread of a neoliberal flavor, relentless, well-funded attack on government's role. But, you know, there's Canadian-style capitalism, and there's the flavor of Nordic capitalism, which is one, I think, Bernie Sanders, and many of his supporters who are democratic socialists, John, when asked about socialism, often equate it more with equality than government ownership or control. This came through in a Gallup poll uh, a few months ago, and I know there's a new Pew poll out about socialism and how different groups—poor, young, African American, white—relate to him. But you know, socialism equated with equality rather than government ownership or control is something that I think is animating, for example, uh, many of the new members of a Chicago City Council who are democratic socialists. Uh, but it, we are we are confronting, as we have at different times in our history, John, a fundament, fundamental debate about the nature. Of capitalism and it seems to me its relationship to democracy to concentration of power uh, to the corrosive aspects of inequality that are undermining our society
2: we have not yet mentioned Joe Biden the current leader in the polls at least you have a remarkable statement of uh, his uh, in your uh, new Washington Post column
4: what was it that he said about the job of the Democrats We've got to save capitalism from... He's referring to Trump. Uh, He's characterizing Trump not as a product of American capitalism, but rather a threat to it. And he says very clearly, Joe Biden, you don't need some radical, radical socialist kind of answer to any of this. You know, John, this is crazy. At a moment, when polls show that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' wealth tax, the billionaire tax, if you will, is popular. It's po- 50, 57%, I believe, of Republicans support a 2% wealth tax on fortunes above 50 million. So I think Joe Biden is a little bit clueless about <laughs> where the economy is for millions of Americans, particularly uh, those who he seeks to recruit, white working class, African American working working class. I think we're in an inflection point, an extraordinary moment where we're having this long overdue debate about capitalism, about what will best protect our democracy from plutocratic takeover and challenge the concentrated power uh, undermining our democratic norms. What interests me, I have to say, is many leading business leaders and investors also see the cracks in this contemporary capitalism. I mean, the guy who heads Salesforce observed recently that capitalism as we know it is dead. You had 200 executives of the business roundtable saying that business needed to look beyond shareholders to stakeholder. Now, you got to make them walk the walk. They can talk the talk, and I'm not saying that we need little tweaks. We need deep systemic reform, and I think that is where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie share an outlook on how to move forward. Though Bernie, of course, is a more radical democratic socialist, Elizabeth Warren, in her bill called "Holding Capitalism Accountable," think of that. She's equating herself with capitalism. Had some you know, had some very important ideas, which are part of our tradition, our history. John, empowering workers, ensuring workers have power, are a countervailing force. Have workers on corporate boards in the German model. I think we need. You know, a whole set of new business models with um, commitment to communities. Think of, if I could, your listeners have probably heard of this book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. I mean, capitalism, through falling wages and loss of good jobs, has just ravaged the lives of working class people. And we're witnessing this dramatic rise, shocking rise in deaths by suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholism called Deaths of Despair. And so when I debated, by the way, I debated David Brooks and Arthur Brooks of American Enterprise Institute at this monk debate a few weeks ago. You know, I turned to them and said, David Brooks, you're Mr. Communitarian. How do you, how do you expect to find a way to rebuild these communities ravaged by deaths of despair if you don't have a different kind of capitalism that is not just free market? And the idea that free markets are opposed or in contradiction to active government is not true to our own history.
2: Well, when I was in college, we were assigned many books arguing that capitalism and democracy go together, that the capitalist societies are the democratic ones, and there's a reason for that, because they believe in letting the consumer choose which product they want, and, of course, they also let the voter choose which candidate they want. You see capitalism as more of a threat to democracy, then, as the cause of democracy.
4: I do, and I think this country's extractive capitalism, we could call it extractive, we could call it predatory, we could call it corporate capitalism, is deepening inequality, is undermining freedom, and is endangering democracy, ravaging nat- na- nature, and subverting healthy innovation. So I think we're at a place in a moment at this time where... For example, take social mobility, John, at the heart of the American dream. You'd be far better off to live in Canada today where there is more social mobility. I mean, the American dream has essentially moved to Canada, where there's now (laughs) twice the level of social mobility than the U.S. Wow. And I think that the debate we're having about the overbearing power of billionaires in our system is it's not just about the economy, John. It's about our political system. Why is it? that those with concentrated wealth have the concentrated power that defines the policies which define where this country heads. And I'm always struck, I have to say, and I think um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an interesting example of this. But why is it that, you know, policies that are important for building what I would call a dignity net, a social safety net, are often... How can we afford it? How can we afford it, they say. Well, why isn't that question raised when we go to war in wars that cost $6 trillion over these last 18, 20 years? And that's just assumed that it's something that we need to do. So uh, I I think we're at a moment where people understand that concentrated power is in need of puncturing, to say the least, and that we need this deep structural redesign of our economy.
2: And of course, many of us believe the number one problem facing humanity is climate change. And, right. and there are some connections there to capitalism, I believe.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that you're seeing corporate lobbyists work to dismantle the regulatory apparatus, the companies they represent irrevocably harming our environment. And I think even as corporate America, as I suggested, has become more vocal, about the importance of sustainability and the perils of climate change. It has opposed the dramatic policy changes needed to prevent catastrophe. We've had some extraordinary writers, as you know, John, at The Nation, uh, Naomi Klein in particular, thinking deeply about the connection between capitalism and the climate crisis. We've had Chris Hayes write an extraordinary essay called The New Abolitionism, which is really about keeping fossil fuels in the ground and Embarking on a radical redesign of our energy future, we need to think radically to the root of the problem. I, I use the term extractive capitalism uh, with a reason, because so much of the capitalism, as we know it, is bound up with the climate crisis. I do think, however, that you know we live in a world where there is more openness to really rethinking the kind of society and its relationship to capitalism. corporations versus people. And, you know, another world in economy is possible. I think a new generation, as we have talked about, John, is more open to socialism. uh, There's a a fascinating figure who was featured in our honor roll, our annual end-of-year honor roll, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who uh, has been an alderman in Chicago since 2015. He ran as a democratic socialism. He credited the ship to Bernie Sanders. But he's also sees that people are more open to thinking about a different economy if it's rooted in their lives and their communities. And uh, it's not just Democratic Socialists for America, which has surged in these last uh, couple years, but it's also, you know, immigrant rights groups, anti-racist campaigners who um, are coming into this thinking anew uh, about democracy, about about the power of workers versus capital and i think there's real we're at an important moment where there's there's an openness which did not exist now it will demand warren and sanders at a national level continuing to keep uh... as editor don guttenplan wrote so well keeping that left lane wide and vibrant because the forces opposed are deep and well-funded, as as we've seen over these last years. And the Democratic Party establishment is not ecstatic about a new generation, which is really questioning the kind of capitalism which has ravaged, not empowered uh, our society, workers, people, climate, economy.
2: Katrina Vanden Heuvel, she wrote about capitalism and socialism for The Washington Post. You can read her at WashingtonPost.com slash opinions. Thank you, Katrina. It's great to have you on the show.
4: Thank you, John.
2: 2019 was the year of the terrorist attack in El Paso, where Patrick Cruzius killed 22 people at a Walmart and injured two dozen more. We're told that the shooter was a loner, obsessed by Mexicans, but like almost all of these attacks carried out by domestic terrorists, the El Paso killings were treated as a single event. Some of the other attacks were defined as racist, others as anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim. The only commonalities we hear about among the killers are terrible childhoods and assault weapons. But these attacks are connected. And for that, we turn to Katherine Ballou. She writes for the New York Times op-ed page. She teaches history at the University of Chicago. She's been featured on Fresh Air and PBS Frontline. And she's the author of the book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback. We spoke with her just after the El Paso attack. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Well, all the attackers we're talking about have been described as loners, but you say these attacks are all connected. How?
1: So this is a place where the history of the white power movement can really help us to understand what we're seeing in the present. And I say movement because we're talking about a coalition of people that included a lot of different belief systems, including Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups, skinheads, and other activists. And it also included a lot of different kinds of people, people of both genders, people who lived in rural, urban, and suburban places, people across class and educational backgrounds. Um, And they came together in a movement with one another in the late 1970s, using the aftermath of the Vietnam War to sort of coalesce around common narratives. And one of the key strategies that really brought this movement together was a thing called leaderless resistance. Now that's pretty easy to understand. Now in the post-9/11 world, because it's essentially cell-style terror—the idea that a few people can work um, in a cell without direct communication with other cells and without direct orders from leadership in the movement, but that all of these cells can be coordinated in action. Cells can be anything from one to, say, 12 people. um, And this strategy was implemented sort of to stymie prosecution and infiltration efforts. But there's been a much larger and, I would argue, more damaging legacy of the strategy of leaderless resistance which is that it's effectively erased this entire movement as a movement. So what we see instead are a series of stories about lone wolf attackers, acts of violence that are inexplicable and unrelated to each other. We get narratives about perhaps mental illness or personal animus or something. And we miss the very political, very deliberate meaning of this violence, which which comes from understanding it as interconnected.
2: And what is the larger goal of all the attackers in these terrorist incidents?
1: One thing that's really important to understand about the white power movement is that within this movement, the end goal is not the act of mass violence itself. The violence is supposed to be a political action that will work, these activists believe, to awaken other white people to the cause and bring people into the movement. These acts of mass violence are meant to incite a broader race war.
2: But aren't these people the most recent ones at least isolated loners? Dylan Roof for instance, the Charleston killer didn't go to meetings, as far as we know, did not was not a member of an organization, and as far as we know, neither did the accused El Paso killer.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing that's happening now is that This movement, which has been using the internet and other computer technologies for a very long time, since the early 1980s, has now reached a level of sort of computer mobilization that is bypassing some of the ways that social relationships used to be very important to this movement for recruitment of new people. So Dylan Roof, as you say, was a loner who didn't have real life connections with other activists. Nevertheless, it's really clear that he did have connections that meant a great deal to him with this earlier history of white power activism. And the thing that I always think of is the photograph of Roof wearing a Rhodesian flag patch. So Rhodesia, for listeners who might not be aware, uh, Rhodesia was Zimbabwe before um, a revolution changed it from a minority rule government of white people in power to a more democratic system, which is now Zimbabwe. But Rhodesia, this all happened before Dylan Roof was born. This is an old, old issue for white power activists, but it has huge meaning within that movement. And the fact that he chooses that as an identifier when there have been so many other more recent flashpoints that he might have chosen, is a really clear indicator that he is in communication with other activists and that he does sort of see himself as part of this longer trajectory of, of action.
2: These individuals are called white nationalists, but you say that the nation at the heart of white nationalism is not the United States. What is it?
1: It's important to call this the white power movement because white nationalism makes people think of something much less radical. People think that, the, that white nationalism is just sort of overzealous patriotism or injecting whiteness or shoring up whiteness within the body politic of the United States. But the nation at the heart of white nationalism is the Aryan nation. It's imagined as a transnational polity of white people that could be brought together into either a white homeland or eventually kind of an all-white world. Uh, that's an inherently radical and violent project that's that is fundamentally opposed to the interests of the United States.
2: Of course, it's crazy to think that a white power uprising, even by heavily armed violent groups, could overthrow the United States government. How exactly do they imagine they could do this?
1: This is the million-dollar question, and this is why The Turner Diaries is so important. The Turner Diaries is a dystopian novel that uh, first appeared in a serial in the late 1970s in a prominent white power magazine and then was collected into a, uh, a paperback. Um, and the Turner Diaries lays out the path through which this seemingly impossible thing could happen. And in the book, they describe it as a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant. In other words, how could a fringe movement hope to take down the most militarized superstate in world history? And what they lay out is essentially guerrilla warfare, in which acts of violence and sabotage are meant to destabilize power and awaken other white people such that they can eventually tip the balance and achieve an all-white world. Now, for those who have read the Turner Diaries, it is a deeply disturbing but not particularly graceful read. But it's, it's, it's enormously important to the movement precisely because it answers this question. It creates the imaginary through which people can envision how this might work. Um, and we can see how it's so important because of its enormous saturation in white power activist circles. It's still cited and used very heavily today. Its language is still used to frame what activists are doing. And in the period that I look at in the 1980s and nineties, it shows up everywhere. It's in bookstores in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. Um, it, it's kept in stacks of 20 and 30 copies in the bunkhouses of paramilitary training facilities. It's all over the place.
2: And what would you say was uh, the biggest success of the white power movement over the last 50 years?
1: The, the largest and most successful example of an act of mass violence meant to awaken people to the movement is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Um, now, we have a public narrative of that bombing as another of these lone wolf events. Occasionally, we see a more complex story that involves co-conspirators, um, but usually it's only the people who are tried with Timothy McVeigh. So we're talking about a group of three or four people. The reason that we understand it that way is that there was a huge and very unsuccessful and embarrassing seditious conspiracy trial a few years earlier in 1987-88 in which the federal government attempted a large-scale prosecution of white power activists and came up with acquittals. Um, The trial was hugely embarrassing for the federal government. And in its aftermath, there was a decision made that these crimes would be investigated not as part of a movement, but only as individuals. I think the language was they would make no attempt to tie the crimes to a broader movement. So that's the policy in place at the moment of the Oklahoma City bombing. So from the investigation to the trial, everything is limited by that that piece of decision-making such that there's never an investigation, much less sort of a coherent change in public understanding that this is the work of a movement. Um, but I spend a full chapter in the book talking about how deeply Timothy McVeigh was immersed in this movement, um, both through social collections, uh, connections and his own beliefs. And how this is really clearly an act of white power violence.
2: You've shown us in your book, Bring the War Home, how the historical roots of this white power movement go back to the 70s and the 80s. Is there anything new about the recent attacks, say at El Paso or Charleston?
1: Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, this movement has been online since the early 1980s and in many ways pioneered social network activism. Before the rest of us had even heard of something like Facebook, Um, their early message boards were posting things like, um, you know, assassination lists and targets, but also things like recipes and personal ads. So this is a deeply imbricated site of social network activism from the beginning. But what we see now is as those social network spaces have expanded and become um, more sophisticated, these attackers are using things like going viral and using things like the underside of the internet to connect with one another, to organize, and also to kind of pave the way to future violence. But there's a clear change from the earlier manifestos to the more recent ones that they're starting to contain more and more tactical instruction for future actors. So the latest one in El Paso had information about ammunition, target selection, ear protection, all kinds of things that are in there so that future attackers can use that information to carry out additional violence. That kind of direct use of the manifesto as a messaging tool, I think, is is new.
2: Let's talk about Donald Trump's place in the white power movement. The El Paso Killers' manifesto quoted Trump extensively about an invasion from Mexico. But your history and analysis suggests a different way of understanding Trump's role in white nationalist violence.
1: There are a few different things that are important to understand. One is that the last time this movement turned violent was not under a leftist government. The last time this movement declared war and carried out assassinations and stole military weapons and began a cycle of paramilitary training was in the second term of the Reagan administration, when arguably they stood to benefit from a lot of the policy coming down From the federal government. So the idea that because there's a sympathetic executive, we will see a reduction in this kind of activism and violence um, simply doesn't hold true in the historical record. The other thing that's important to understand is that this kind of a social movement is organized across a, I guess we could think of it as a spectrum of sort of intensiveness. So if you think about a series of concentric circles, What we're talking about in the period that I study is a very small number of people, 10 to 25,000 people in that middle circle who live and breathe this movement. Those are the people who might become violent and a whole bunch of other people who just have their entire lives in this movement. They attend white power churches. They pick each other up from the airport. They provide childcare to one another. They get their marital counseling in the movement. Often they live in communities that are entirely within the movement. Outside of that, there's another 150,000 people who aren't that deeply involved, but who regularly attend rallies, purchase the newspapers, send contributions, and do stuff like that. Outside of that, there's another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves buy the newspapers, but they regularly read the newspapers. Now, this is where we have to get a little bit more You have to imagine the next circle, which is people who would never themselves read something that says official newspaper of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, but who might agree with some of the ideas in them, um, especially if they are presented by a friend or if they come to them from someone they trust. That outer, more diffuse circle um, is a place where there is a whole bunch of people who are talking about invasion Mm -hmm. in, in the current moment, who are talking about all kinds of other racist ideas that that have consequences for people in this movement and beyond. So I think what we need to do is really understand how ideas travel from one place to the other across history. Um I would also just say that My colleagues uh, who study the early 20th century would tell you that this invasion language certainly isn't new, and that we have a long history of thinking about immigrants as, as invading the nation. And there's a lot that history can tell us about strategies that have and have not worked to sort of overcome that idea.
2: So far, we've been talking about men. Is there any place for women in the white power movement, or are they just wives and mothers?
1: This is the biggest surprise to me from the story, because I thought I was going to be writing about paramilitary masculinity. And the thing that that appeared in the archives is this intense and very deep network of women's relationships that sustains this activism. Now, the women in this movement serve a really important symbolic role. And you can you can think about this as simply for activists in the white power movement, many issues that that people understand as kind of just classic conservatism for these activists come down to preservation of the race through the reproduction of white children. So, for instance, opposing immigration in the white power movement has to do with the number of white babies versus the number of other babies. Similarly, opposing abortion, opposing gay rights, opposing feminism, in white power discourse, all of this is tied to reproduction and the birth of white children. So so there's a hugely important symbolic role for women. But there's also a material role that women undertook that others have not always seen or taken seriously. Women in the white power movement were doing enormous performative activism in sort of vouching for their husband's credibility and good character. Um, They ran their own quarterlies. They did coupon drives. They did campaigns to support uh, the birth of white children within their own communities. They even created tourist sites where people could go and visit uh, the places where the people that they call white Aryan martyrs had been killed by the federal government. And beyond all of that, if you want to see this social movement, you have to look at women, because women are how you can tell that these groups are interconnected. Uh, White power shows up for a very long time as an array of seemingly disconnected forces. But if you look at the actual people who are involved, what you see is This person's daughter married the leader of that group. These two sisters married these two brothers and cemented an alliance between those groups. And women are how you can sort of see how this all worked.
2: And there's a Christian element here, too, isn't there? What's the relationship between white power and Christian identity?
1: Christian identity is a political theology that became very, very important to this movement in the period that I study and is still around today. Christian identity, is the idea that white people are the true chosen people of God and that everyone else, all other races and ethnicities are descended either from Satan or from animals, depending on uh, the doctrine that you're following. And Christian identity is very similar to kind of the broader evangelical groundswell we see in the 1980s, not just on the far fringe, but in kind of mainstream conservative circles. But evangelicals have the rapture, which is the idea that they will be transported peacefully to heaven before the apocalypse. Christian identity says there is no rapture, that people who believe in this will have to survive the end of days, and that they must take up arms to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. So what that does is transform this entire uh, political and ideological belief system around white reproduction into a holy war, because now it is a project of faith for these activists to take up arms and engage in race war.
2: Last question. You worked on this book, Bring the War Home, for 10 years. Tell us about your research. It's it's a scary topic.
1: It is. And, you know, of course, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to get the story out, but I, I it's been really a uh, intense experience to see it moving into the center of public debate in in this way over the last few years. The book is based on extensive archival work, as you say, over 10 years. Um, I have three major ephemera collections from the white power movement that include their published and unpublished writings and drawings. Um, And then I also used a lot of declassified government information um, from using the FOIA process from the FBI, the ATF, and elsewhere. And then newspaper searches in the United States and um, in Mexico and Nicaragua, because I have one chapter deals with mercenary soldiers who go to Nicaragua and other places in Central America to fight communism, quote unquote. It's really interesting how much this movement produced. And the three major archives I look at from the white power movement are very different in character. One was compiled by a journalist, one by an archivist who sent around a questionnaire to the groups and said, you know, send me any materials you have lying around and one by participant observers who pretended to be part of the group and then just picked up materials as they attended meetings. Significantly, all three of those places have basically the same materials. So I do have sort of a sense of coverage of what was going on in this time for these activists.
2: Kathleen Ballou's book is Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback, And it's indispensable to understanding what's going on right now. Kathleen, thank you for your work, and thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thank you very much.
2: And, of course, 2019 was the year Trump was impeached. For comment and historical analysis, we turned to Rick Perlstein, He's the award-winning author most recently of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, and of the classic book Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller and was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick is former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Nation. We spoke with him at the end of the first week of impeachment hearings. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. I want to talk about public opinion then and now. At the start of the Trump impeachment hearings in the House last week, opinion polls showed 52% support for holding the hearings, 45% opposed. And even more surprising, support for removing Trump from office right now is 47 percent in favor, 45 opposed. I wonder at the beginning of impeachment hearings on Nixon, were there 47 percent in favor of removing him from office?
0: Well, you have to remember that the thing developed quite gradually and quite slowly. So we're talking about impeachment the impeachment process in the House Judiciary Committee was something that you know began and uh, started working its way through the system in spring of summer in 1974. So before that, in the summer of 1973, there were there were hearings on Watergate in the Senate that were led by Sam Irvin that began in May of 1973. And what really kind of broke the back of his popularity and got people started talking about impeachment was this thing called, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre, which happened in October of 1973, when there was a special prosecutor who demanded he produce the tapes, the evidence that he'd committed crimes, and he responded by firing the special prosecutor. And that's when, you know, seeing people showing up in the front of the White House wearing Uncle Sam suits and saying, you know, honk for impeachment and all that. So it was a very slow process, Although I always like to point people out to the fact that, you know, we had our Saturday night massacre, which was the Comey firing, you know, two and a half years ago. So in a lot yeah. of ways it's lower, Right. <laughs> but, um, in this highly partisan, Atmosphere, I think people were willing to give the president a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. don't forget the only poll that matters in nineteen seventy two he won forty nine states and and something like sixty percent of the vote in the election and My favorite poll result was a week before that sixty percent of the public said that they trusted him more than they trusted George McGovern, who only got twenty nine percent in that poll so he was a really he was really good at his cover up. <laughs> He wasn't like you know uh, Donald Trump, who you know kind of spouted admissions to crimes you know on the public record. Very different cats, very different processes. The thing that I'm repeating over and over again is that really Watergate fundamentally was about Richard Nixon trying to hide evidence because he knew that if the evidence came out, the world would know he was guilty, and he had enough shame to realize that he would have to leave office. On the other hand, Donald Trump seems perfectly willing to, you know, do things like release the transcript and, you know, admit that he's guilty in in public. And that's even more frightening because he knows that no matter how obvious his guilt is, he's always going to have a solid wall of people in the Republican Party willing to defend him. And he's not going to have to leave office at all because he has no shame.
2: And he said that at the very beginning of the 2016 election campaign, that famous quote in the... Iowa primary campaign, where he said he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters, talking about the loyalty of his base.
0: Chosen to stage a natural experiment as to find out whether this is the case. He's <laughs> clearly a very dedicated uh, social scientist.
2: <laughs> well, of course, Watergate is very much on the minds of everybody involved here. Nancy Pelosi said last week that Trump's pressure on Ukraine to uh, come up with dirt on Joe Biden, quote, makes what Nixon did look almost small, close quote. She said what Trump did was, quote, much worse than what Nixon did in covering up the burglary at the Democratic National Committee. I wonder if you agree with Nancy Pelosi on that. Well, if, she's, if,
0: if she was so hot to try out against Trump, I wonder why she didn't get there on this thing a heck of a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're both... Terrible, and they're both unconstitutional, and they're both profound threats to the constitutional order. I like to point out that if you really want a good parallel, if you want a secret foreign policy run out of the basement of the White House against American policy, look at Iran Contra, which everyone seems to have forgotten about, maybe because the Democrats really getting out the stomach to fight that one to the end.
2: Well, remind us why the Iran Contra affair in the late days of the Reagan administration. Seems like a a revealing parallel, and what conclusions you draw from it.
0: What happened in Iran-Contra was this unbelievably surreal scheme, in which you know Ronald Reagan and you know the conservatives around him were desperate to funnel money to the anti-communist opposition, the Contras in Nicaragua, whom who Reagan uh, announced were the moral equivalent. Equivalent of the founding fathers, even though they were, you know, murderous thugs, and there was very low public support for that. And Ronald Reagan, if you recall, kept on going on TV and giving, giving these hair on fire speeches, talking about how it's only this many miles away from San Antonio that, that that's being taken over by, you know, the communist conspiracy, and no one in the public cared. So the people around him just decided they were going to do this on his own. You know, really, pretty much with with, with Reagan's knowing approval. And they chose a very strange way to do it. Americans kept on being seized as hostages by the allies of Iran in, in the Lebanese war that Reagan had chosen to get in, involved in the middle of.
2: This is rather far from Nicaragua, I believe.
0: Rather. And, uh, but, they, but they needed cash and they wanted to get these guys out. So these kind of scumbag arms dealers would come to, to Washington and say, we, can, we have ties to moderates in the Iranian regime. And if you show good faith by selling us missiles in our war against Iraq, then we'll send the word and they'll release American hostages. And they would do it. You know, Reagan sent missiles to our enemy, Iran, and lo and behold, the hostages were not released anyway. So that was kind of one of the many scandalous things about this policy, even though it was supposedly stated American policy that we don't you know, negotiate with hostages. And they would sell the missiles that cost $18 million for $50 million, so there was that hustle too, and they would take the extra money and they would send it to the contras, and and by the way, Oliver North would take some of it and buy snow tires and you know buy buy a burglar alarm for his house. So there was all kinds of grifting going on on the side, surprise, surprise. But to make a long story short, you know they created this kind of private foreign policy with their and, own funding and, sources, even after Congress had specifically passed laws outlawing sending military assistance to the contras.
2: And yet, this did not end up with impeachment hearings against Reagan, why not? Very, very
0: much so. I think that the kind of mandarins who run Washington and the bipartisan foreign policy elite and the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to take this thing to the end because, you know, we had only chased the president out of office 13 years before that. Lyndon Johnson had kind of left office in basically a state of shame after the Vietnam War. He chose not to run for reelection. And I think people said enough is enough. And there really was this kind of too big to fail attitude that if we keep on taking on presidencies, then the kind of smooth functioning of the American system can't work. And the Republican Party received a very different signal, which was that basically it was open season. They had a uh, blank check. And, uh, you know, the next Republican president is George H.W. Bush, and he pardons the Iran contract felons. We're hearing a lot of talk about pardons now from Donald Trump. And then, of course, the next president, uh, Republican president after that, George W. Bush, does all kinds of chicanery around spying on American citizens. And Barack Obama says after that, that, you know, it's really behooves us to look forward and not backward. And then we have financial crisis and there's no accountability for that. Again, too big to fail. And now we have a president who's really dictatorially minded, who seems determined to take this thing to its uttermost.
2: I remember complaining about the Watergate investigation and the articles of impeachment that the House eventually voted that Nixon's real crimes, as we call them, were not his cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. His real crimes, we said, were against the people of Vietnam, his cover-up of the way he sabotaged the peace talks, his illegal bombings of Cambodia, his overthrow of democracy in Chile. There are similar complaints today about the Democrats' current focus on Trump's dealing with Ukraine when there are so many other terrible things he's done. What do you think about this parallel?
0: I would say two things. The first is that when the House began working on articles of impeachment, they did include an article for his secret bombing of Cambodia for which he, you know, created these double ledgers like a mafia don, who would have like one ledger about, you know, his payoffs and one for the legitimate front business. But that's an important comparison to today, because what happened in the House Judiciary Committee was that basically an equal number of Republicans and Democrats on the committee Organized themselves into what they called the a fragile coalition and said, if we're going to impeach a president, we have to do so on articles that both parties agree on. So it really proves the extent to which this was this bipartisan process that you had these kind of public-minded Republicans who are perfectly willing to uh, abandon their president if their consciences directed them to. So that's one thing. But the other part of it is, yeah, I really do think that this is problematic, this this idea that Pelosi and Schiff have, that if you kind of bundle this into this tidy little package that the public can understand and turn the investigation only into this small, what some people would consider a venial thing compared to a lot of the other things Trump did, the public will understand it better and they can better uh, persuade public opinion. I have a very different interpretation of this, which is that when Trump is acquitted, which he will be by this majority Senate, run by this authoritarian political party, the Republicans. He'll just say, basically, what are you going to do? Impeach me again, right? And he's going to see it as a blank check to do even worse things. So I think that you have to kind of go for broke. You're going to shoot the king. You can't miss. It's too late now. I think they've kind of, the die is cast, but they should have made this as kind of overwhelmingly complete reckoning with the entire anti-constitutional conception that Trump came to the presidency with and pull everything together. You know, when they started, when Archibald Cox started his independent prosecutor's investigation, they had seven different task forces about different aspects of crimes in the Nixon administration. And this stuff included taking bribes for the milk industry so the milk the milk industry could get price supports. You know, they got uh, into things like um, the way Nixon uses public money to improve his private residences. You know, they got into things like a uh, $100,000 donation he took from a financier who was a fugitive who wanted to come back to the United States. And pretty soon this narrative was established. It wasn't a complex narrative because it was so big that what the public came away with was that the Nixon administration was corrupt from, from stem to stern. And I think that was the reason why, by the time they had this smoking gun evidence, people were willing to take this extraordinary and frightening step of abandoning the president, saying that we cannot move forward as a country, as a democratic republic, with this guy in the Oval Office.
2: Rick Perlstein. His books include The Invisible Bridge on the Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Frank Rich called it a Rosetta Stone for reading America and its politics today, an epic work. Thank you, Rick. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Take care. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.